on the 22nd of July, 2011, a man by the name of Anders Bering Breivik detonated a bomb outside the government offices in Oslo. The explosion killed eight people, seriously injuring ten, with a further 200 suffering mild injuries. He then continued his one-man massacre on the small island of Utøya, where the Norwegian Labour Party were holding their annual summer camp for its young members. There, he shot and killed 67 people and injured 33. Additionally, another two people died of drowning and injuries from a fall in the desperation to avoid being shot. The majority of the dead were teenagers, the youngest being only 14 years old. In fact, only seven of the people that died on Utøya that day were over 25 years old. In total, 77 people died in the worst terror-related incident in Norway since the Second World War. This is Nordic True Crime. Anders Bering Breivik was born on the 13th of February 1979. He has two half-brothers and two half-sisters from his parents' previous relationships. Breivik's mother, Venke Bering, worked as a nurse. His father, Jens, worked for many years as a diplomat for the Norwegian State Department. The couple decided to separate in 1979, so Jens left Norway and moved to Paris. Two years later, in 1981, the family first came to the interest of social services. Breivik's mother contacted them in order for her son to be placed into a relief-type program, which would see her son taken into the care of a foster family at the weekends, and for a brief period of time, he would spend the weekends with a young couple, but in the end, this wouldn't last. In January of 1983, Breivik, his mother and half-sister were admitted to the State Center for Children and Adolescent Psychiatry for a month. Now, by the age of four, it had become apparent that Breivik had been beaten and verbally abused by his mother. It was reported that she had wished on several occasions that her son was dead. Psychologists have also reported that even during breastfeeding, his mother had described him as clingy, aggressive 
and hyperactive. Experts at the center describe Breivik as passive, anxious, and with a pronounced devastating smile. It was then suggested by the psychologist that he would be placed in foster homes in order to prevent a seriously skewed mental development in future years. When Jan and Wenke finally divorced in February 1983, Breivik's father started legal proceedings to gain custody of his son. But custody was eventually granted to his mother. Around 1990, Wenke entered into a relationship with a new man who would become Breivik's stepfather for almost 12 years. At the beginning of the 90s, his biological father moved back to Norway from Paris and in the next five years, he would regularly meet his son. However, these regular meetings did not bring them closer together on an emotional level. And it was during this time Breivik came to the attention of the police due to graffitiing, or so-called tagging. This was also reported to the social services. He was then frozen out of the graffiti community, as it had become clear that Breivik had himself been reporting various graffiti groups to the police. In 1995, all contact between Breivik and his biological father ceased. His mother claimed that his father had broken all contact with his son due to the graffitiing, while his father claims that it was in fact Breivik who wanted no further contact. As of March 2016, Norway currently employs a weak form of mandatory military service for men and women. In earlier times, up until at least the early 2000s, all men aged 19 to 44 were subject to mandatory service. Breivik, however, was exempt from conscription to military service in the Norwegian army and had no military training. The Norwegian Defence Security Department, which conducts the vetting process, says that he was deemed unfit for service at the mandatory conscript assessment. He may have lacked the requirements the military were looking for, but it did have the drive to succeed in business. In 1998, Breivik and his friend started their first company, Bering and Kemer Marketing. The idea was to sell computers and computer programs. This would be the first of many companies under his name. Some 
more than others, being very dubious indeed. Just two years later, he registered the company Media Group AS in Oslo. And it was here that he shared a lunchroom with the lawyer Geir Lippestad, who would, in time, end up being his own defense lawyer. The next of his companies, registered in 2002, was started with the intention to sell fake diplomas, mostly to American customers. As shady as it may sound, this was a lucrative business for Breivik. He was to go on to make around 6 million Norwegian crowns from this company, which in today's money is around 540,000 British pounds or 747,000 American dollars. In the same year, he visited Liberia, according to his own statement, in order to meet the founder of the anti-Islamic group Knights Templar, which prosecutors would later dispute actually exists. Testimony argues that he actually traveled to Liberia in order to purchase or trade blood diamonds. But it seems the attempt failed and he left having been threatened with death. In 2005, Breivik was active in setting up of yet another company. He started the e-commerce group AS, which was started with the intention to carry on the work of the previous company, selling fake diplomas. This company would go bankrupt just a few years later. According to Breivik, he also visited Belarus in 2005, with the intention of joining up with a terrorist training camp. But after investigating this claim, the police believe that he had in fact traveled to Belarus to meet a girl that he had previously chatted with online. In 2009, he published extensive comments on the website document.no, posts that mainly focused on beliefs, Marxism, and multiculturalism. Later in the year, he attended a foundation meeting for a support association to document.no and also contacted the editor of the website with suggestions on how to commercialize the operation or launch a new website with a conservative profile. The editorial board made some inquiries about Breivik and then denied cooperation because it was considered that he could not be regarded as a serious player. From 1997 until 2007, Breivik was involved in Framskrittspartiet, which roughly translated means Progress Party, until his membership expired due to unpaid fees. 
the party itself is described by both the media and academics as being very popular with the far right, as well as being a paid member of the party. He was also during this time a member of the far-right Norwegian forum Nordisk.nu. In terms of his religious beliefs, in 2011, he described himself as being Christian in cultural terms, but lacking any personal relationship with God. In September of 2010, Breivik bought 30 litres of model aeroplane fuel from different suppliers. The fuel contained nitromethane, which can be used for the production of explosives. Just three months later, the Norwegian Security Police, PST, received a tip that Breivik bought smaller amounts of aluminium powder and sodium nitrate from Polish suppliers. The tip was never followed up because Breivik was previously unknown to the authorities, so they believed that he posed no risk. In April of the following year, Breivik rented a van and a farm which lies in the county of Hedmark. At the end of the same month, Breivik ordered six tons of manure and in May he started the process of producing explosives. On the 13th of June 2011, Breivik made a first test explosion and then he was ready. On July 22, 2011, Anders Breivik is sitting in his room at his mother's home. He is preparing for what will happen today for several years. He chooses some photographs of himself that are intended for the press and encloses them in an email together with the 1,500 long compendium he has written and sends this to over a thousand recipients, both in Norway and abroad. He clothes himself in a black uniform, manufactured by himself to resemble a police uniform, and jumps into a white hired van that is parked outside the house and drives into the city of Oslo. He parks directly outside the government district. The van contains the 950-kilo bomb he has produced using fertilizer, diesel, and aluminium. He lights the fuse, which has a burning time of 7 minutes, giving Breivik plenty of time to shut the door and walk the two blocks to where his other car is parked. At 15.25, the bomb explodes outside the government buildings. 
eight people die, ten people are seriously injured, and another 200 people suffer from mild injuries. However, since this occurred in July, many people in the area were on vacation. Otherwise, the number of injured and dead would probably have been much higher. At the time of the detonation, Breivik is already in the second car driving towards his main goal, Utøya. Utøya is roughly 40 kilometers outside Oslo and is owned by Arbeiderpartiet, the Labour Party in Norway. It is a very small island of about 500 meters from north to south and about 300 meters from east to west. There is a large cottage, a tent site, and relatively sparse vegetation of trees and shrubs. Every summer, a week's camp is organized for the youth group by the party. This year, 560 participants are on the island, and Gro Harlem Brundtland is invited as a guest speaker. In 1981, she was chosen as Norway's first female prime minister, and because of this, and for many other reasons, she is a feminist icon. The 2011 summer camp started on Wednesday, July 20th, and the weather had been nice and sunny for the first few days. But on the Friday, the rain poured down on the island as the youth group listened to the guest speakers. Just before 4 p.m., the news of the bomb in Oslo begins to reach the participants. Of course, there is worry and concern among all of them, but no one even thinks they should be in any danger, and some even ask if the disco that they are supposed to have in the evening must still go ahead. None of them suspect the evil that is heading their way. When Breivik arrives at the dock, he persuades the captain of MS Tobjörn to ferry him over to Utøya. He tells the man that he is from the police and is just going on a routine visit in regards to the bombing that has just happened in Oslo. The captain has no reason to distrust Breivik. He is, after all, wearing a uniform which is very much like that of the police, and he also shows identification. Both of these are of course fake, but the captain doesn't realize that, so he takes Breivik on board and sails to the island. When Breivik arrives on Utøya, he first meets 
a camp leader, and a civilian clothes security guard. He tells a similar story to the one he told the captain, that he is there because of what has happened at the government building in Oslo, and explains that he is there to check if the threat applies to everyone within the Labour Party, a so-called security measure. He asks people to gather around him so that he can pass on important information. And with that request, he lifts his Glock and his automatic weapon and shoots dead both the security guard and the camp leader. The time is now 1721 and the reign of terror is set to continue. Breivik has a serious amount of ammunition with him and systematically moves around the island, shooting everyone he comes across. Those that he could not get to, he would chase out into the cold sea, using that as another way of carrying out the mass murder of innocent youths. At 17.24, the first call is made to the emergency services. It is the captain of MS Torbjörn who took Breivik over to the island, calling and saying there's shots coming from Utøya. One minute later, the second call comes in. It's from one of the youths on the island. At 17.33, the police special forces, Delta Team, are ordered to go out to Utøya. At the time, they are currently in the government district, dealing with the aftermath of the bombing. Meanwhile, Breivik continues to walk around the island, gunning down anyone he encounters. It takes a while before everyone fully understands that there is a man on the island systematically murdering anyone he comes across. A witness later explains that when she first heard the shots, she thought that someone was just firing an air gun. But when the realization of what is actually happening sets in, sheer panic broke out. Because the island is so small, and there are very few places to hide, especially with 560 people there, many do the best with what they have, and squeeze themselves into the rocky crevices surrounding Utøya. They are waiting and praying that the police get to them before Breivik does. Unfortunately, Many don't find a place to hide and are coldly executed before the police get there. But many do manage to survive, survive in the most unimaginable circumstances. Some people lie there, clamped under and between their murdered friends, the same friends who were full of life, 
just a few short minutes before. One girl is shot twice, and despite being in severe pain, she manages to play dead. Quick thinking that more than certainly saved her life. Breivik has later admitted that he realized it would most likely be very mentally challenging to shoot people at such a close range. So he had taken a lot of drugs to keep him focused as well as to distance himself from his actions. He also listened to loud music in his headphones, making him feel like he was in a video game. At 17.59, he finds a mobile phone on the ground that someone had dropped in the panic. He picks it up and calls the local police. He presents himself as Anders Bering Breivik from the Norwegian resistance movement and says that he wants to surrender himself to the police. But the conversation ends abruptly and Breivik continues the massacre. To try to deceive those who had hidden from him, he shouts out that he is from the police and he is here to help them to an evacuation boat down at the quayside. Those who believe him come out from their hiding places and are shot dead. Many of the youngsters call the emergency services from the island, begging them to send the police. They tell them that they're on their way and to hide and be silent so that the shooter cannot find them. Over on the mainland, the shots can be seen as well as the desperate youngsters who have been forced to jump in the water and try to swim the 700 meters from Utøya to the mainland. It is summertime, but the water is very cold. The melting snow upon the mountains has run down the slopes into the lake, cooling it down. Some quick-thinking people from the mainland rush out in their boats in order to save the fleeing youngsters from the freezing waters. At the same time, Breivik is both shooting those in the sea and those coming to their rescue. At 17.52, the first police arrive on the coast of the mainland. However, due to miscommunication, they have arrived at a harbour that is 3.6 kilometers away from Utøya, instead of the harbour that is much closer, just 600 meters from Utøya. In addition, they have problems with the boat. Eleven heavy-duty police officers sit in a rubber boat designed for up to ten people. They are forced to drive very slowly to avoid taking on water. And after five minutes, the boat's engine shuts down. 
Another boat then meets them, and ten of the police jumps aboard. But even with the help of the new boat, they must drive very slow, as it is only meant to carry a maximum of five people. Finally, two much larger private boats meet up, and the police split up and speed up to Utøya. At 18.26, Breivik calls the police again. But this time, he calls a different district. He asks to be connected to the person in charge. He wants to surrender. Breivik is afraid that he will be shot to death during the arrest. Something he does not want to happen. He must be taken alive to spread his message. He sees himself as a tool or a foot soldier for the conservative revolution. But even this call is abruptly ended. So Breivik continues the killing spree. At 1827, those on Utøya hear a helicopter flying over the island and they think it's the police coming but it turns out to be a news helicopter. However, the police arrive shortly thereafter, and at 1834, Breivik is caught in a forest ditch without any resistance. He had by then been on the island for over one hour, emptying round after round of ammunition. In the aftermath of the attacks, Breivik's far-right and militant ideology became instantly apparent in the compendium of texts titled 2083, A European Declaration of Independence, which was distributed digitally by Breivik on the day the attacks were carried out. Within his manifesto, He describes his worldview, which supports cultural conservatism, ultranationalism, right populism, Islamophobia, Zionism, anti-feminism, and white nationalism. Breivik wrote that the main motive for his actions on July 22nd was to promote the manifesto. The material published under the pseudonym Andrew Berwick, also includes a diary and a biography. Breivik's original plan when he got to Utøya was to decapitate Gro Harlem Brundtland and shoot the rest. But Gro had left the island before Breivik got there, unknowingly avoiding disaster. In the pre-trial hearing, February 2012, Breivik read a prepared statement demanding to be released and treated as a hero for his preemptive attack against traitors, accused of planning cultural genocide. He said, They are committing, or planning to commit, cultural destruction, including deconstruction of the Norwegian ethnic group and deconstruction 
of Norwegian culture. This is the same as ethnic cleansing. The criminal trial of Breivik began on the 16th of April 2012 under the jurisdiction of Oslo District Court. On the 24th of August 2012, Breivik was adjudged sane and sentenced to containment, a special form of prison sentence that can be extended indefinitely again and again with an approximate time frame of 21 years and a minimum of 10 years, the maximum penalty in Norway. Breivik did not appeal, and on September 8th, media announced that the verdict was final. The court said, Many people share Breivik's conspiracy theory, including the Arabia theory, the court finds that very few people, however, share Breivik's idea that the alleged Islamization should be fought with terror. What happened that day, in both Oslo and on the island of Utøya, was completely beyond the understanding and comprehension of everyone. Many have since said that it was the day that Norway lost its innocence. One fact is certain. It will be a day that Norwegians and the rest of the world will never forget. The day that 77 innocent people lost their lives.